Thank you, brother, for that prayer. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and stand now. We're going to move on to our <clears throat> scripture reading for the message tonight, Luke 22. And we are now at the point where Christ is really going to enter into the final hours of his life. Luke 22, we're going to tonight look at verses 63 through 71. Luke twenty-two sixty-three 63 through 71. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophecy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. Uh, But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, Rightly you say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray to God. O God, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts by the working of the Holy Spirit upon this word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight's passage, we continue to march through Luke. It's a brief section. It's actually a brief time window in the journey to the cross that Christ is taking. But this portion is really signified by the mocking and beating of Christ by his fellow Jews. And then we're going to see he's taken before what, what we could kind of call like a mock court before the Sanhedrin, where he's falsely accused. And then, interestingly, due to the cowardice and self-focused reputation of the Jewish leaders, Jesus is then passed over to the civil magistrate, to the Romans, for execution. So today we're going to discuss the blasphemy our Lord endured, his response, or how did he respond to their ridicule, and then how the blatant hypocrisy and duplicity and deception of the Jewish leaders was clearly exposed Now, in your notes, which is on the back of the uh, bulletin here, I've kind of laid out a timeline to help us see where we're at. So we remember that Jesus was first in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, with his disciples. That's where Judas came and exposed him. It was kind of an ambush, a setup. And then we're told this detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews, they sort of had their own militia, Uh, came and got Jesus, and that's where we see, interestingly, they took hold of him, and they immediately started to beat him. I mean, they didn't waste any time. They mocked him. They've been sort of waiting to do this. This had been built up, right? Now they had their opportunity, and we're going to see that they take him to the house of Annas, Annas was actually the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. 
It's a very important figure. But his father-in-law was Annas. And it, it's, it's probably most likely they kind of shared a house or maybe were on the same property or complex. Um, sometimes houses were a lot connected then. <clears throat> so they take him there. He t- he, he's brought to Annas. Then he's brought to Caiaphas. Then he's turned over to the civil magistrate, to the Romans, to Pilate, which we're probably most familiar with. And he's brought to the praetorium there at that time. So this account is a very important account. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And all four Gospels give us slightly different information. I'm going to bring all that in tonight to give us kind of the comprehensive picture. Um, And you can actually see here in Luke, it doesn't talk about Annas' house or Caiaphas, but that's uh, very prominent, for example, in in Mark and John. But I'm going to bring it all together. So we see that Jesus is led away from the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, and Matthew tells us this. He said, at that time, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, we know that Peter and John kind of hung out for a while with him, right? Uh, But we see, really, for the first time in many years in his ministry, Jesus is all alone, effectively, right? He's effectively alone. We've got got Peter kind of watching, we'll see from the courtyard of Annas' house, and we've got John who follows him all the way to the cross, right? But really, he's alone. And that's what we saw in Psalm 69, right? Uh, Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's children, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So Christ is alone. He's sort of separated. There's kind of a, you could, could, there's a physical separation. It's almost like a spiritual separation. He's he's pulled away from all. His, the people that were for him, with him, the people that had given to him. And, and so, so Jesus, think, think just, just a little bit before this, what was going on, right? We, we saw the, the triumphal entry. We saw t- crowds cheering, right, for the entrance of their king. And now, all of a sudden, he's arrested, and they're like, wait a minute, this is getting scary. And they, they flee. He's now a stranger, He's an alien. He's all alone. And it's not surprising, right? I mean, you, you, you can imagine even the people, when you see somebody arrested, it's kind of a scary thing. You know, you're thinking, am I going to be arrested next? I don't know what's going on. So certainly, for, perhaps some that were, were new followers of Christ, I bet they had questions in their mind, like, wait a minute, is this the Messiah? Is this the king? He's getting arrested. Could he be? So Jesus is taken to the house of Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, or the high priest. And there, he's immediately mocked and beaten and ridiculed. We see that in verse 63. The men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophecy, who is the one who stroke you, struck you? And many other things, they blasphemy spoke against him. So, this is just incredible audacity by the Jewish leaders against the Son of God. The mocking, the beating, the scorn, laughter, probably as they made a fool of the Savior of the world. And of course, we know from Psalm 69, again, this was to their condemnation, right? And, and, and this was even prophesied about throughout the Old Testament over and over, over again. We know that there's Psalms 
that prophesy about Christ and his death. Psalm 69 is one of the most significant ones. Um, But listen to these other places. Job 16.10. Job 16.10. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. And they gather together against me. Exactly what happened. Isaiah 53.7. We're familiar with this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he not opened his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers, as silent so he not opened his mouth. Lamentations 3.30, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. Similar to the language in, uh, in Psalm 69. So Jesus is brought to the house of Annas. So here he is. He's already being beat up. He's blindfolded. He's mocked. And as I said, this complex, there's, there's a portion that was likely the house of Annas and then maybe kind of connected to it. I kind of think of like this idea of like a big house, but it kind of had this wing to it that maybe Caiaphas lived in as well. And there was always, there was assemblies and things going on there. They would have uh, this, what was called the Sanhedrin there. All the, the elders effectively uh, and, and some of the scribes of the area together. So all the Jewish leaders we could really think of at that time. But this was a total setup, okay? They bring Jesus there, and they're already assembled, you know. And, and this is the this is this is the early in the morning. This is a weird time. So this was all planned. So you think back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Jesus is praying, right? Remember, he's praying alone. He comes back to his disciples. He's like, "Wake up," you know. So they're assembling during this time, is what they're doing. They're assembling. They're like, we're going to get him. We're going to judge him. We're going to condemn him. This is all planned out. Because they bring him to the house of Annas, and all these elders and scribes are there. And so then they basically run this sort of mock fake court. And I call it a, a fake court. They wouldn't call it that. They would say, we're putting him on trial. But it was completely uh, set up. Right, it, it was completely set up. And secondly, it was deceptive. The trial was deceptive. I want to read to you from the Gospel of Mark. And this kind of gives us insight as to what happened at the house of Annas. The chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. So in other words, they asked, hey, can anybody come and testify against this guy? He's a bad guy. But they found none. So... Many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. (laughs) So silly. So basically, they brought all these people in to make false testimony, false accusations against Jesus, but their stories didn't even agree. I mean, they probably looked like fools at that point. And I, I would guess, I have no biblical proof of this, but remember how they paid Judas? Remember that? I bet you they paid some of these false witnesses too. It says, Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another without hands. But even then, in that, their testimonies did not agree. So uh, it's quite a pathetic display. They brought in these false accusers, and, uh, and their stories didn't even match. And that's pretty bad, right? I mean, you look pretty bad. Uh, they were really, at this point, exposed as liars. If there was anybody watching, if there's anybody a witness to this, which there might have been some people, and there might have even been some of the elders and scribes that were kind of on the fence, like, I don't know, is this guy bad? Who is this guy? So there might have been some of that. But they gave false testimony, they gave false witness, and they were trying, 
we're told in the, in the, the Gospel of Mark, their goal was to be able to judge him and put him to death for committing some breaking of the law that required the death penalty. Um, but again, their, their testimonies didn't match, so their trial sort of went bust. It didn't really, it didn't really go out like they, they thought. They thought they were going to bring all these accusations and it was going to be like, see, he did this, he should die. See, this, he should die. This, he should. But it was like confusing. I get the picture that it was a confusing trial. Like, what, what's going on here? Like, this guy says this, is that even true? And maybe he counteracted, even contradicted some of the things he said. But they approached him in that way, and that's what happened. So as a part of this trial, they're trying to make a judgment against Jesus. And they come to this point, it seems, that we see in Luke 22, verse 67, where they're really like, okay, well, none of the, te- none of the false testimony worked. Let's just ask him some direct questions, right? Maybe that'll work. So they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. And this is uh, Jesus' response. He says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe, which is true. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. And then verse 69, very powerful. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And... This is a very powerful statement. So Jesus is asked this question, but he responds to them by basically saying, everybody can see that you're, you're, going, you're here to condemn me. This is not a fair trial. And then he says, I'm the son of God. Which he'd said before, right, as we know throughout the Gospels, he said before, but here he's saying it sort of in a for, very formal way. And this language he uses was very particular. The Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And you can see uh, in your notes there, I even placed, this is repeated throughout the Old Testament, that this is, this is what the Messiah will do. The Messiah will come and rule and reign and sit at the right hand of God. So when he's saying this, it's sort of like, it was sort of like really poking um, the Sanhedrin and saying, I'm going to tell you, you know who I am. And this is the truth of who I am. And so, of course, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Again, there it is, sitting at the right hand of God. And, uh, and even a, a pushback against the Sanhedrin, almost like, you're my enemies. And so it was a very, very powerful statement. Now, later in Uh, Acts, of course, after the ascension of Jesus, we see Stephen continue to reference this statement. This is a very powerful statement. Uh, Stephen even said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so again, Stephen's being stoned. And again, he's declaring this just powerful picture of Christ. So in his response, Jesus was not just declaring who he was. But he was also giving a picture of the colossal chasm, the difference between those, those elders, those, those scribes, and himself. Between him and his accusers, these leaders who were mocking and beating up an innocent man, or really the God-man, and trying to falsely accuse him, compared 
to the Messiah, the one who'd come in purity, in holiness, in sinlessness, the one who served and healed and helped and laid down his life. It's such a sharp contrast between the two, the two entities here. It's Christ and then all these false accusers and all these elders, all these condemners. And so when they ask, are you the son of God? Jesus tells them, you rightly say that I am. In other words, yes, I am. And from the Gospel of Matthew, listen how the high priest, Caiaphas, responds. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, has he spoken blasphemy? Yes. What further proof do we need? Look now, you have heard of his blasphemy. What do you think? They all answered and said, he is deserving of death. Now, a very interesting thing happens right here. You would expect the Jews at that point to actually put him to death. What actually they had the authority to do if a person was obviously proven by two or three witnesses or proven by the court uh, of the Sanhedrin. But they don't. And this is really what we want to study tonight. Why did not they put him to death? Because they've done this before. Um, I mean, they, they would even say later in Acts, the stoning of Stephen, which, right, which was under Paul. They would say that was totally justified, right? Um, and they did a lot of other things like that. But, but why did they now not kill him, but they took him to the praetorium? They know they took him now to a Roman government building for trial before Pilate. And again, this is, this is early in the morning. It's kind of the idea the sun's coming up. A very weird time for all this to be happening. Sort of not normal business hours, if you were. But let's... Let me um, just read to you here, uh, again, from, from the, the Gospel of Matthew, what happened. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves, this is important, they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled that they might not eat the Passover. Pilate then went out, when it had to go out, because they were like standing at the door, and like go out to the foyer and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They, you get the picture of like, so let's say that we have our foyer there, right? And they all come to those doors and they kind of push Jesus in there. And Pilate's like, what's this guy all beat up? So he has to walk out and be like, what's, what's the deal? Why did you push this guy in here? I mean, it's just silliness. It's just absolutely uh, ridiculous. And it's a good question. Why didn't they come into the praetorium? And, uh, and now, let me just keep reading in, the, in, the, in Matthew. So Pilate went out and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him and said, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. In other words, trust us. Just trust us. He's a bad guy. Right? And then Pilate said, well, then you take him and judge him according to your law. Great response. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is, listen, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the sayings of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying the death he would die. And again, we see that in prophecy. So again, the true agenda and heart uh, of the, the, the Jewish leaders is really revealed. It's, first of all, there's a hypocrisy, um, but there's a, there, I would, the best way I would call it would be a duplicity, Okay. They, why? They, were, they had openly revealed who they were. They, were. they were pleasers of men. 
not pleasers of God. Actually, Jesus said that in Matthew. Because they, first of all, did not want to kill Jesus themselves. Why not? Why didn't they want to kill Jesus? Because all the people would get mad at them, right? They knew that like the people were like for Jesus, like pro-Jesus. And they didn't want that. They feared the people, right? They absolutely feared the crowds. They were, they were cowards in this way. And not only that, think of this hypocrisy for a minute. They had sort of cobbled together this kangaroo court, right? This fake trial. They brought in people to lie and bring false testimony. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, you know, we, we don't want to be defiled. So, so they've broken the third commandment through blasphemy. They've broken the sixth commandment through plotting murder. They've now confidently broken the ninth commandment by outright deception. And now they're all holy and don't want to be defiled in the praetorium. It's like, wait a minute. What? It's like, you might as well just keep sinning since you've already sinned. So what hypocrisy we see. Despite beating and blaspheming Jesus, now they don't want to be defiled because then they couldn't take the Passover. And again, it's, it's an aspect of man-pleasing, right? If they couldn't take the Passover, if they were defiled, all the people would know and say, wow, our leaders are defiled. What's going on here? So again, they, they wanted to protect their reputations. It was absolute duplicity. And this is really why we see such strong words from Jesus against the Pharisees. I mean, he railed on the Pharisees. And this is why, of course, because they displayed in word and in conduct the exact opposite of what Jesus expects of his disciples, right? right? Christ's followers were to be humble, broken by the grace of God and not worried about our own reputations, right? Willing to forsake all for Christ. Jesus, the followers of Jesus are expected to be open and honest and truthful and sincere. And the scribes and elders were the exact opposite here. So we can see as they picked and chose the laws of God that they wanted to, or that, that really suited them, that would benefit them in the eyes of the people, right? Because they fed off the praise of man, and they were not operating in the fear of God. And this is really a self-oriented obedience to God's law. They obeyed God's law in the parts of God law, God's law when it benefited them. But Areas that they needed to break to get their agenda done or weren't really a benefit to them, they broke those. And of course, you might know that this is really what we see in an arm of liberal Christianity, right? It's, it's deciding what to pick out of the word of God. Um, and, uh, and this was very clear to my wife and I in the PCUSA when the elders just blatantly told us, right, right, that, that the Bible contains some of the words of God. It is not the word of God. That's what they would preach. And it was just phenomenal. That's when we knew we had to leave. But it, 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 this is what happens, and this is exactly what was operating in the minds of the Pharisees. Their hearts were ruled by what I like to refer to as the seven giants. You might remember a long time ago, many years ago, I gave this sermon called The Seven Giants, and, uh, and I discussed how when we operate in the flesh and not in faith, we long for self-advantage and self-proclamation, right? Our spiritual walk is really dismantled 
when we're operating in the flesh. Galatians 5 talks about that. Um, but, but we have to walk with the Lord. And if we're not, if we're walking in the flesh, then we're going to be focused upon ourselves, right? And so the seven giants uh, that I said in that sermon long ago, and I, I believe this is a good characterization also of what the elders there and the scribes were doing, particularly in that trial that they put on for Jesus, were this. You can see them there in your notes. Look good, meaning you do everything so that you look good in front of others. Feel good. You, you do everything so that whatever makes you feel good. I mean, that's kind of a motto of America now. It's like, do whatever makes you feel good, right? Um, be right, meaning it's sort of a pride. I'm right. I'm always right, right? Uh, stay in control, right? That's an, important, that's an important thing. It's like, I've got to control everything here. You know, I can't, I can't lose things out of control. Hidden agenda. Is there any hidden agenda in what you're trying to do? Personal advantage. And of course, I think that's what's most clear from the elders and scribes here is they, had a, they wanted to gain personal advantage through the circumstance. And then remaining undisturbed, um, meaning you know, if God has a different path for us, then uh, we, don't want, we, we don't want to be disturbed in that way. So sometimes in life, we learn from people what not to do, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe you've even said that to yourselves. I don't want to be like that, right? And, uh, and this is really somewhat of a lesson of the Pharisees and the, the elders and scribes here for us. We must examine our hearts and ask, like this is a good question I think to ask whenever we're doing anything. Am I doing this for me? Right? Or, or am I doing this for God or for the glory of God? It's just a simple question. And I, am I doing this action? Am I taking this? Am I making this decision for my self-preservation, for my self-advancement, for my agenda to get what I want? Or as a redeemed, blood-bought son, or, son and daughter of the king, am I no longer living for myself? Am I living for the glory of Christ? Am I living and doing this for my Savior? for his bride, the church. So, just to close here, by way of application, I think it's fair to ask ourselves in a moment of self-examination, do we pick and choose in God's word? And you might say, no, 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 I, I, I don't do that. I, I obey the whole Bible and I believe it perfectly. But it's going to require a little deeper examination. Uh, because I think we need to be open to realizing we all have blind spots. Particularly in, I, I use this word traditions, and the traditions that we're familiar with. Which means, you know, maybe we always hear preached here, or just maybe in your family you've always heard. And we're just like, oh yeah, the Bible says this. But, but have we really dove in and examined it? You know, what does it say? And so we need to stick with the word of God, of course, and not tradition. We need to, as the Puritans would often say, lay ourselves upon the word of God, right? And let it rend our hearts. Let it, let it sort of quicken us or, 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 or correct us where we need to be corrected. And we need to be on guard also for, of course, false teachings. Um, we need to be on guard for little additions and little subtractions from the word of God. Of course, the enemy is going to sow this in a very subtle way, right? Um, and we've seen this actually um, throughout uh, Presbyterianism. 
It's really the history of Presbyterianism. You know, start a new denomination is formed. It's very conservative. Conservative, it's very solid. And then there's these small little compromises made. And it drifts and drifts and drifts away from the word of God. To the point where now the PCUSA church, for example, is not even considered a true church. Which is a, a very sad thing because sound doctrine is not preached there. So we need to really remember that the word of God is something that must be held very solidly. And we need to be on guard for this. And also, uh, we need to look for it in our own lives. Right? We need to be humbled before God and be willing to set aside the traditions of our day. Right? There's cultural and worldly norms that I think we probably all, to some degree, and we might not even be fully aware, that we've invited into our Christian lives and into the church. And we must be very clear readers, I'll say, and doers of the word of God. So we must hear rightly. We must hear clearly and then do the word of God in that context. And this is perhaps the biggest danger for us, is that we know the word of God. Right? We, we know that we study the Word of God. Some of us might memorize the Word of God. We hear it preached a lot. Uh, but it can be compromised in our living. In, very, again, very, very subtle ways. Um, money, fame, pride, independence, isolation. These are all the things that our world is shouting at us. Like, you must do this. You must do this. Um, and so they, they sort of affect us, sometimes unknowingly. Because we're swimming in the murk of it every day. Right, And so we must walk by the Spirit uh, in, in deep conformity to the Word of God. And I think it's a good self-examination for each of us as we read the Word of God. You know, it's like, the, the, again, the Puritans would say, read the Word of God, meditate on it, which means, okay, I just read that. Am I living this? And then pray. Pray for God to, to, to help you know how to apply that to your Word or maybe convict you of where you're not. Even simple passages even. Um, I mean, there, there's certainly big bombshell passages, right? Like, uh, deny yourself, right? Okay, how am I denying myself? How am I, how am I right? You could, you could spend time doing that. Um, there, are, there are other nuances that you might come across to, that you find, you find yourself convicted upon. Um, uh, maybe in terms of uh, the Lord's Supper, how you partake of that, how you approach that. Am I approaching that with the right heart? Uh, these are things that we can go to the Word of God for. Um, so we have to consider soundly our lives, our positions, our decisions according to God's law and His truth. And we really need to be on watch for this in our own lives. Uh, may we really be open to self-examination, right? And take the, the raw, unabridged Word of God and read it. And, uh, and I just want to end with a final a point uh, that I, through the years, have found, uh, as, 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 as we shepherd, as we, as we, we pastor many people, we'll find out sometimes reading the Word of God on a daily basis is replaced by little devotionals. And these are great devotionals. I mean, they can be great. But I'm talking about these little things that, that maybe a man writes or woman writes or something, and it's a couple paragraphs. And, and those are great. And usually they're based off of a scripture. Like, it'll start at the top with, like, a scripture, right? Like, one verse or part of a verse. Right. And those can be really good. But that does not satisfy our soul's need for the word of God, right? 
And, and, and it can kind of, because it's written by a, a man, it, a woman, it, it, it could, you know, those little tiny tidbits could be slightly off or think us, cause us to think slightly wrongly. So the devotionals are great. This is not a knock on devotionals. But you still need the pure word of God, right? The, the pure milk of the word, right? We, we need that. And so don't, just don't overlook that. Read devotionals, that great, but just read the word of God as well. Um, that's really important. And I've actually seen this come up um, in counseling as I've walked with people uh, and shepherding people. And they'll say something and I'll be like, where did you hear that? <laughs> that's not really the truth, you know? Like, uh, particularly there's a, there's a, a sense of self-confidence. You know, I, I, need to, I need to just, you know, do this myself. And it's like, well, actually, you're supposed to deny yourself and depend on God and trust in God. And so, see, it's, it seems subtle. Like self-confidence seems like a good thing, you know, in our day. Um, and uh, God, by his strength, will cause us to be confident in him, right? Um, but may we just uh, come to the word of God and consider it just uh, by way of application. So, again, in summary, we see Christ and his continued journey to the cross from the Garden of Gethsemane now to the fake trial where the really, once again, uh, the deception, the hypocrisy, the duplicity of the Sanhedrin was exposed, but Christ again won because he declared who he was. He was able to declare in their face who he was, seated at the right hand of God, uh, the distinct declaration of the Messiah. And we praise our God for this. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this word tonight. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the truly the man of sorrows, who came as the atoning sacrifice that we may live. And we thank you for your word. And Father, help us. We, we may even unknowingly at times pick and choose from your word. Oh God, would you convict us of that? Would you reveal that to us and show us that? Because we want to stand on the firm foundation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and make no alterations to it, make no additions to it, but live and walk by what you have given us. And we ask that you'd bring this to us in Jesus' name. Amen.